Can you say amen to that? Amen. Church, why don't you have a seat? We're going to jump into the Word. Thank you, worship team. Awesome. Oh, if there are kids. Awesome. Thank you, Stephanie. If there are kids here, uh, you can head out with uh, Miss Virginia. She is going to be with you in GT Kids today, and uh, you're going to have a great time with her. I know that. This is something I heard this week. Uh, it's just, uh, this is just for fun. I think you're going to love it. So this is a transcript of a radio conversation that occurred between a British and an Irish uh, naval guard off the coast of Kerry in, um, it says here in October. Radio conversation released by the Chief of Naval Operations, the Irish here. Uh, Please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Collision. The British say, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Irish response, negative. You will have to divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. British response, this is the captain of a British Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Irish, negative. I say again, you will divert your course. British, This is the aircraft carrier HMS Britannia, the second largest ship in the British Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. I say that is 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Irish, we are a lighthouse. Your call. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? I thought that was pretty good. The last thing, we are a lighthouse. Your call. They can't move. Awesome. Well, we're going to continue in the Word this week. We've been, uh, we've been studying here the book of Ephesians, and we've been calling our series uh, Blueprints. Because as we've been learning that Ephesians is actually uh, a bit of a, a blueprint on how to do life. Ephesians is a blueprint on how to do church. Last week, we took a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15, all the way through chapter 2, verses 10. You know, this is a letter that is meant for encouragement. We talked about last week that this is Paul's only letter that he's writing not based in conflict. Most of the time when you get a letter from Paul, it's because something is going wrong, but not here. This is a letter that Paul is writing to the Ephesian church because he's heard about their faith. Because he's heard about the good things that God has done in them, and he's thankful for them. He wants them to know that he is thanking God on their behalf. It's a letter about the power of God and how that resides within us. And it's a letter about our identity that we have in Christ. You know, it describes the human condition, who we were without Christ, who we have become with Christ, and now what we're supposed to do about that. We have both free will and we are predestined. Those are two truths that are, hold, that are held in tension. It's not either or. We have free will to choose Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we are also predestined. That after we have chosen Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are predestined to be conformed to his likeness. So it's not either or, it's both and. We have free will to accept Jesus as our Savior, and we are predestined to be conformed to his likeness. And when that happens, God has already prepared good works for us to do. God prepared good works for us to do in advance. Now, Paul says that we're not saved by those works, but we are saved to do good works. You see, God has reframed our identity 
from who we were before we knew Christ to whose we are now, now that we know Christ. And that is exactly where Paul picks up in his text today. So if you would read with me Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. If you don't have your Bible with you, we have the words up on the screen for you. And I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. Therefore, remember that you, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, by the way, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body... In one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I've called the word this morning, how to live in peace. You know, we are all familiar with the phrase RIP, to rest in peace. And I think one of the things that God is calling us to this morning or wants to reveal through this Holy Spirit-inspired scripture is that he doesn't want us to rest in peace, like the world would say, but to live at peace. You know, uh, the world says to rest in peace is to get through life to sleep when you're dead. All of that anxiety, all of those struggles, all of the conflicts that you have, well, those are going to be behind you when you're dead. So rest in peace. Now, I know that that's a phrase that we use to kind of give peace to ourselves when we have loved ones who have passed on, and I don't want to devalue that in any capacity. But I am thinking that God is calling us not to rest in peace, as the world says to, but God calls us to live in peace. Because Jesus died to break down that wall of hostility, it made it possible for us to approach the God the Father, and he is telling us now, here and now, that it is possible and that we shall live in peace. God calls us as a redeemed, transformed people, not to rest in peace, like the world says. We all know that we can rest in peace in in the presence of God, and that's a good thing, but that's not what the world means by rest in peace. God is calling us as a transformed people not to rest in peace, like the world says, but to live in peace. The first thing I'd like to just draw your attention to this morning is remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. 
Chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. I think that's a really strange nickname to give to yourself, but they did. By those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, by the way. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God. But now, in Christ Jesus, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, Paul is speaking directly to the church in Ephesus here, which is made up of Gentile Christians. In the first century church, there were two types of Christians. You had Jewish Christians, and you had Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians were those who were already Jews uh, previously uh, and, and confessed Jesus as their Savior and followed him. And Gentile Christians were those who were not Jewish but confessed Jesus as their Savior. Gentile Christians uh, tended to come from parts of the world that were dark, uh, that were rife with dark spiritual practices. We talked last week about how uh, where uh, Ephesus was located, there was this uh, dark spiritual practice that was going around. There were cults that were happening. There was dark magic. And all of these different groups had this kind of spirit of fear that they held toward one another. Gentile Christians came from these parts of the world. What you need to know is that Jewish Christians weren't fans of Gentile Christians. And so to the Gentile Christians, Paul tells them to remember whose they are. What is the foundation for living in peace? Number one, I would say that it's to remember whose you are. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember your identity. Remember who you belong to. That is the only imperative that we find in this text. Paul makes it clear that it's our job to remember our identity. Now, I wonder why that is. And I think the reason for that is because others will tell us who they want us to be. Or others will tell us who we're not or who they think that we are. And we need to remember whose we are. We need to remember what God says about who we are. Because in the face of all of those lies that come toward us and those reminders that aren't in alignment with what God says about us, we need to be able to remember and recognize the truth. You know, that is the experience of the Gentile Christian. The circumcision and the uncircumcision. These were terms that were given uh, to Jewish and Gentile Christians alike, and they were given by the Jewish Christians. The rite of circumcision was applied to all Jewish male babies. Now, this physical act was, uh, was a clear mark of distinguish, dis- distinction between Jew and Gentile, and it's one in which Jewish people took an immense amount of pride. So when the Jewish people called themselves the circumcision... They were bestowing upon themselves a title of what they think is honor. It's a title of uh, distinction. It's a title of their relationship with God. And when they bestow upon somebody else, the Gentile Christians, the title, uh, the uncircumcision, it's a title of disdain. They're insulting the Gentile Christians. They're classifying these people who have come to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior by what they're not, by what they're missing. They are insulting these individuals. Now, there is a religious privilege that's operating within these two groups. 
And I think when we apply this text, we need to understand that both groups are privileged. Anybody who has responded to Jesus is a privileged individual. But that religious privilege that we do have cannot lead to division, but it needs to lead to unity. Our status as God's inheritance is a privileged position. And our response to that needs to lead to unity. Other people may refer to us by what we lack. They may call us uncircumcision. But God doesn't call us by what, we miss, what, by what we're missing. He calls us what we are. He calls us his own. So Paul calls us to remember who we were without Christ and who we are with him. He describes who we were at one time in our lives when we were without God. He talks about what we were missing. He describes that we had no relation to Christ. We were excluded from citizenship in Israel. We were foreigners to the covenant promises. We were without hope and we were without God. But now, but now everything has changed because of the blood of Jesus. This is another then and now statement. Ephesians is a book of then and now statements. I once was dead to sin, but now I am alive to Christ. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's a story of a makeover. It's a story of a transformation. So Paul calls us to remember who we were so that we can celebrate whose we are. Now, in application of this text, I think we need to be careful that we don't end up condemning ourselves because of our past, because God does not condemn us because of our past. The Word of God says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look, we don't look back to count our sins. We don't look back to do penance. We don't look back because we somehow think that Jesus' work on the cross was insufficient and we have to cover the rest of the paying the price for that sin. No, no, no. We don't look back for any of those reasons. Paul calls us to look back so that we remember the past only to celebrate what God has done in our lives. Amen? Now, in remembering where we have been so that we can celebrate where we are and that God calls us on his own, there is a possibility that the Lord will, will bring up a particular moment in your life that's challenging or a particular sin in your life that he'd like you to deal with. That's okay. He's not saying that you haven't been forgiven. He is saying that it's his desire to minister to you and others in that area of your life and bring some restoration and bring some wholeness, and bring some healing. It's not condemnation. You are not condemned when the Lord convicts you of something. That's called conviction, and that's a good thing, because it's the Lord's desire to restore, and redeem, and give hope. So to remember who we were, so that we can celebrate whose we are, we need to make some practical steps about spending some time, setting aside time this week to remember and spend mental energy on what Christ has done for us. So church, practically, very practically, I want to challenge you this week when you're spending time with the Lord to make some specific intentional efforts to remember where you were so that you can celebrate where you are and whose you are and allow that to be a prayer of celebration. And maybe the Lord's going to stir up your spirit so much that you're going to get excited about it so much that you need to share it with somebody else. Maybe, maybe, just saying. It's done that once or twice. This morning we talked about 
how we need to remember whose we are. And the next step I think that we need to pay attention to is to break down the wall. Break it down. Let's take a look at verses 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace. For he, Jesus, is our peace. Who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, we both have access to the Father by one spirit." Now, as I've been reading this text, I've got to be honest that I find it a little bit disturbing. Because the reason that this is written is that there was some conflict that existed among these Christian groups. There was significant conflict that existed between Jewish and Gentile Christians. And it's difficult for me to understand how two groups who both have given their life to Jesus as their Lord and Savior could still live in this hostility. But it happened. And the Gentiles experienced total religious isolation from the Jewish Christians. And so it's not surprising then that Paul reminds us that Jesus is our peace. He says, for he himself is our peace. That's Jesus. Now, that peace isn't a warm, fuzzy, inner feeling that we have of everything just feels good. It's not something on the inside. It's not even the peace of God that transcends understanding. We all know that we have access to that and that we can live in that, but that is not the peace that Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about a vertical peace that exists between one person and God the Father. He's talking about a horizontal peace. That means Jesus is our salvation. He is our life. He is our peace. He is our reaction to conflict. He is our reaction to hostility. You know, the text tells us that there is a dividing wall of hostility. There's not 100% consensus as to whether Paul is referring to a literal wall or if he's just trying to use an illustration. But there is agreement that the early church would have been reminded of a real and present wall. You see, uh, in Jerusalem, in the temple area, there was a barricade that marked where Gentile Christians could go and Jewish Christians could go. There was a vertical barrier that stood in the temple uh, precincts in Jerusalem that prevented Gentiles from proceeding from the outer court to the inner court. This barrier encircled the higher ground that contained the inner courts and had attached to it at several intervals notices in Greek and Latin warning Gentiles not to proceed farther on pain of death. Jews and Gentiles experienced total religious isolation from one another. Now our job is to take this text and, and, and discover its theology and apply it to our lives because we may not have a literal wall of hostility that has a notice saying don't go farther upon pain of death. We don't have that so much. But it is still our job to be faithful to what Paul is trying to say and apply it to our context. You know, we've been reading, you know, the word to our children uh, since they've been born. And Stephanie has read the story to Asher about uh, the four friends that lower the, the friend into the house with Jesus. And they like, they make a hole in the roof and the man is paralyzed and they, they put him down. And Jesus forgives his sins. And then he says, get up and walk. And he does. We read that story to Asher probably about 30 times. 
And he's never responded to it in any capacity. The first time he says anything about it, his response was, some men don't walk. That was his take home from that story, right? That had nothing to do with, you know, how how we need to be good friends and, and bring people to Jesus. It had nothing to do with how Jesus is able to heal us and forgive our sins. It had nothing to do with the fact that there was a huge crowd and Jesus is magnetic and the power of God is something that impacts the atmosphere. Nothing to do with that. His practical application was some men don't walk. So I want to be very careful this morning in our application of the theology here, because unless we were born in a Jewish or a Palestinian home, we really have little understanding of the barriers that Judaism has created. But if the law in the ancient world was the dividing dividing wall, for us, it's a racial wall. For us, it's a political wall. For us, it's an economic wall. For us, it can be a gender wall. And the question is, did Christ's death abolish all barriers? You know, the separation between Jew and Gentile was the most obvious in history. Not only was it clearly defined, it was actually grounded in commands from God from the Old Testament. But if this barrier has been set aside, can we be faithful to the word and continue to erect barriers? Now let me define barriers for you because we don't have a literal wall. But a barrier is something that causes us to distrust to devalue, or to limit and take advantage of somebody. If God really doesn't show favoritism, if we are all created in his image, like the word says, if his purpose is unity, if we are to love even our enemies, if Christ took hostility into himself to destroy it, then on what grounds can we justify devaluing, distrusting, limiting, and taking advantage of people? Paul in the early church extended unity in Christ to Jew and Gentile to slave and free, to male and female. And we cannot get numb to the fact that that is shocking. That is controversial. That male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, that barrier is broken down. And I believe that none of our barriers, devaluing, limiting, taking advantage, or distrusting other people, has any basis in light of the cross. Now listen to me, do not misunderstand what I am saying. I am not saying that sin is not a big deal. I am not saying that we need to agree with and embrace every lifestyle, every belief, and every decision that people make. I'm not saying that we need to move to a theology that says that Jesus is only one way to access God the Father. I am not saying that we ever dilute the Word of God to appease popular consensus. I'm not saying any of those things. But what I am saying is that the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. Do you know that hymn? The ground is equal at the foot of the cross. Because when we approach the cross, all of the barriers are broken off. Because every one of us has understood that when we approach the cross, our plight is the same, regardless of our race regardless of our political affiliation, regardless of our gender, our economic status, or our cultural heritage, when we approach the cross, we are simply a people that have recognized that we are sinners and we are in need of a savior. We can only stand there because our standing is God-given. It is not something that makes us better than anybody else. You know, I've struggled with the kind of wrestling through some historical periods that have existed, uh, you know, in the name of God. 
And I, I wonder, you know, how Christians living during the U.S. Civil War era on both sides failed to see the theological significance of Ephesians chapter 2. You know, were they so caught up in their debate about the merits of slavery that they neglected to remember that Jesus came to destroy hostility and to create unity? Do they assume or love so much the barriers that they've created that they neglect to hear the text? Considering the cross, any barrier, Jew and Gentile, liberal and conservative, rich or poor, black or white, any barrier that devalues somebody and treats them as if they are not created, loved, and sought by the creator of this universe has no place in the church's theology. And I'm telling you that our witness is at stake. The way that we treat one another, the way that we practice peace among ourselves and through us, it has an important part to play in our witness. Paul continues to say that Jesus came to set aside the law. Now, other variations, the uh, English Standard Version says that, that Jesus came and broke down the wall of hostility by abolishing the commandments of the law. Now, for those of us who have read our word, we know that that kind of presents a problem, right? Because Romans 3.13 says, do we then overthrow the, overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So the word says that he came to abolish the law, and then the word says that we don't abolish the law, we uphold the law. So we have these two truths, both contained within scripture, that are kind of held in tension. So how do we handle that? You know, I would suggest to you, in fact, that the righteousness required by the law of God is actually realized more fully by the inward enabling of the Holy Spirit, in Jew and Gentile alike. The law in the Old Testament was something that you had to work to keep. It was something that you did under your own strength, under your own power. That's how it worked under the Old Covenant. But now we know that the same spirit that uh, rose Jesus from the dead dwells within us to empower us for ministry above and beyond our own abilities. So I would suggest to you that we actually have a greater righteousness required by the law. But what is abolished? is probably the effect of specific commandments and regulations that separated Jew from Gentiles, whose non-observance of the Jewish law rendered them unritually clean. Paul doesn't abolish the law as the word of God or as a moral guide. In fact, he doesn't do that at all. But he says that the law as a set of regulations that exclude Gentiles, that, that is what we're talking about setting aside. In fact, Jesus creates in himself one new man, the word tells us, in place of two, Jew and Gentile. They become a united body of believers. They become the church. Paul suggests that this third race between the Jew and Gentiles, they become one in Jesus Christ. That the name-calling of uh, chapter 2, verse 11, needs to be over. We need to make peace among us and throughout us. Peace isn't just my peace. Peace is our peace. It's not just that vertical, it's the horizontal. We are all in need of the peace of Jesus as much as everyone else. We need to remember whose we are. We need to identify and break down walls that devalue, limit, and distrust and take advantage of people. Finally, I'm going to uh, say this morning that we need to learn how to dig 
We need to learn how to dig. We're all familiar with the term DIY, do it yourself. I'm going to give a new term to you this morning, dig, do it with God. I know it's cheesy, but I'm hoping that a little bit of cheese is going to help you remember this. All right, so we're going to do it with God. How is it possible for us to be at peace with one another? I'm going to suggest to you that we need to do it with God and focus on Jesus. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not meaning for this to sound like a kind of an easy Sunday school answer. You know, like, how do we live at peace with one another? Well, we focus on Jesus. I know it kind of sounds like a Sunday school answer, but I really do feel like it's rooted in the text. Have you ever walked into a church and felt really uncomfortable? Now, I'm not, uh, I hope that's not this morning, right? But I, and I'm not talking about the kind of uh, discomfort that you experience when you feel like maybe the, the building isn't clean enough, or it's disorganized, or, or, uh, or the music is too loud, or the music is too quiet, and it just doesn't fit your personal preference. That's not the discomfort that I'm referring to. I mean, like, do you ever walk, have you ever walked into a church, a community of believers, and you felt uncomfortable because you felt like you didn't belong? And maybe it's, maybe it's because somebody said that, or maybe it's because you just felt like that. But that is the experience of the Gentile Christians when they walk into the Jewish Christian church. And that is what Paul writes to us and says that it's just not okay. The Gentile Christians would have felt uh, uncomfortable walking into a Jewish church. Because, uh, and Paul says it's not okay because Jesus died so that we may have peace with one another, not just a vertical piece, but a horizontal piece. You know, I found it really difficult in preparing for this message because I like to think that that just doesn't happen anymore. I'd like to believe that in my heart, but the truth is that it does happen. And I'm just going to share with you a few quick Coles Notes versions of some stories, and I assure you that none of these have happened at this church, so don't turn to your neighbor and speculate, was it you? Because the answer is no, it wasn't them. But in my personal experience in ministry, uh, in, in some different locations, I've had a few of these stories that came to mind too quickly, if you ask me. You know, a friend of mine had a tattoo, and he came to church. It was on his arm. He was wearing a T-shirt. And, uh, and he was told by an usher that he needed to cover it up or leave because tattoos are from the enemy. Now, I'm not here to debate the merits of the tattoos, but I think we can at least all agree, no matter where you fall on that issue, uh, we can all agree that at least somebody with a tattoo still needs to know the love of Jesus. They need to know the gospel message, and we can't turn them away at the door, can we? You know, there's a young adult that came to our church that was wearing a baseball hat, and he was told to take it off or leave by a church member. And I understand, and I appreciate that there's a certain amount of respect and reverence and decorum that we have, but we also have to appreciate that people are just coming to experience the presence of God. You know, there was a couple that left the church because they saw a book on the pastor's shelf that they disagreed with. They didn't disagree with the pastor. They saw the book, didn't ask the pastor whether or not it was something that was endorsed by the church. They just saw the book on the shelf and felt that was grounds for leaving the church. A family pulled their daughter out of our junior high ministry because another junior high told their daughter she couldn't go anymore unless she and her family attended the main service every Sunday. 
and that's just simply not true. You know, I'd love to believe that this stuff didn't happen, but it did. And I'm, I'm saddened when we let our own baggage get in the way of peace that Jesus has actually died for. I think when we do that, we grieve him a little bit. The word says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. Paul has just finished telling us in the word about the difference that Christ makes in our lives as individuals. Now, he's talking about the difference that Christ makes in our lives corporately. He doesn't ignore that there are differences and issues. He acknowledges them. You were foreigners. You were strangers. There are cultural, practical, financial, racial, gender differences among you. But like Christ's death and resurrection transforms us, it can transform other people too. You were foreigners, but now you're citizens. You were strangers, but now you're members of the same family. And as such, you are entitled to the same privileges. They are entitled to the same privileges and promises as you. I believe that our ability to practice peace, not just inwardly, but outwardly among one another and in the community which we live is a significant part of our witness to those who have not confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So how do we do that? We focus on Jesus. Paul says this, speaking of the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Again, I said it already, I don't want this to sound like a cliche answer, but I do believe that the way that we can practice peace with one another is by focusing on Jesus. The church, the word says, is built on the foundation of Jesus as the cornerstone. You know, cornerstones were significant in ancient buildings because they were the primary load-bearing stone that determined the lines of the building. Every other stone, every other piece of the building that was placed was placed in alignment with the cornerstone. It wasn't in alignment with the stone right beside it. It was in alignment with the cornerstone. That was what determined the foundation and the building of, uh, of the building. You know, about maybe a month, a month and a half ago, I was doing some spring cleanup and yard work, and we've got this tree in our front yard, and uh, it's surrounded by some stones, kind of like a circle of stones, and so each of them has an angled cut on it. And over the years, uh, just with some erosion, those stones began to kind of tip outwardly and fall away. And so I wanted to fix that and kind of make the yard look pretty again, right? So, so I dug it up, I took them out, and I put the first stone in. And then I put the second stone right beside the first stone, and I aligned it with, you know, two aligned with one. And then I aligned the third stone with the second stone, and the fourth stone with the, th- the third stone, so on and so forth, until I got all the way around. Maybe there was like 12 or 14 stones to get all the way around the tree. And what I found was that each of them looked like they were in alignment with the one before it, but when I got to the end, the two ends of the circle didn't line up. It was divided, right? And so I tried another tactic where I said, okay, so this is the stone that I'm going to place everything else in relation to this one. And then it worked. It finished the circle. When I was done my job, it went all the way around. Christ isn't just another stone in the foundation alongside the apostles and prophets. His position is different. He is the cornerstone. He makes the whole building possible, including the rest of the foundation. 
He is that promised place of security that we have on which the community of God is built. So how does that apply to our lives? How does that apply? Well, you know, over the last uh, number of months, we, we've done a few different series, and one of those series was called F-Words, Freedom and Forgiveness. And I want to talk a little bit this morning about conflict and conflict resolution and forgiveness. If you missed that, check out our website, gtcarnprior.ca, because our tagline for that was, when we fail to forgive, we forfeit freedom. But when we know how to forgive, we live in a freedom that God wants us to have. But, but just a, as a bird's eye view, when someone offends us, When we disagree with an action or an idea, especially in the church, our first response to that offense needs to be to measure it by the cornerstone, right? Because if something is out of alignment because it's not in alignment with the cornerstone, because it's not in alignment with Jesus, uh, we need to deal with that. But it might be out of alignment with our stone, right? We might be aligning stone two and three or three and four. We need to address, is this something that is rooted in scripture, Now, if that's true, if it's out of alignment with the cornerstone, we need to approach that individual personally in love. If you truly feel that that is out of alignment with the cornerstone, you approach them. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17 says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. That doesn't mean grab a microphone and come up on the stage, all right? Nobody's done that, but we need to say that, all right? And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So first of all, when you're offended... When you have something or somebody to forgive, it's not our job to go and approach others. We have to approach that individual that we have offense with. It's not our job to approach others. It's not our job to mask gossip in the form of a prayer request. It's not our job to put it up on Facebook, all right? Because when we do all of those things, we're not actually seeking any resolution. We're just seeking attention, there's this group on Facebook I recently joined. Many of you are probably aware of it. It's called What's Up Arden Pryor. And it's great because, you know, people will put up on there, you know, saw a coyote in this area of town. Make sure if you have a dog, bring them inside. Or there's a sale on at this, tent, you know, business. Or I went to this restaurant. It's wonderful. Go check it out. So it's a great kind of community tool, right? But every once in a while, somebody goes to What's Up Arden Pryor and just complains about stuff. And it drives me a little bit nuts, to be honest, because I know that they're not actually seeking a resolution, they're seeking attention. And I think as members of the church, as a transformed and redeemed people, it's not our job to go out and to seek attention, but rather we approach people in love to seek resolution and reconciliation. You know, our heart and intention must be to bring the church our family, into alignment with the cornerstone so that we can approach our family members out of love. Now, if the conflict continues, it says to bring a neutral third person into the equation to mediate. If that fails, uh, talk to the church. Again, don't come up on the stage and, and air dirty laundry, but rather approach a leader in the church. Approach a deacon. Again, out of love, approach uh, somebody in, in pastoral ministry and share your heart. 
And if that doesn't work, it says to treat them as a pagan or tax collector. Uh, Pagans or tax collectors were people who were not very popular in the New Testament. Of course, you know that. But this doesn't mean to treat them as the world might. This doesn't mean to treat them poorly. It means to pray for them. It means to love them. It means to turn the other cheek and model the gospel with your life, knowing that it is God's will and desire that they too would come in alignment with the cornerstone and confess him as Lord and Savior of their life and then walk in those preordained works that he has prepared in advance for them to do. I'm going to just conclude this morning with one final thought. It's simply this, that Paul was not under the illusion that the church would be perfect, and neither am I. He says, and in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I want you to notice that it's, it's not a past tense statement. It's a present tense statement. It doesn't say you have been built together and have become a dwelling. It says you are being built together to become a dwelling. It's a present tense statement. Let's remember that we, as individuals, we were dead to sin, but now we are alive in Christ. We were discluded from the temple. We would have been those Gentiles approaching those signs saying, don't go on any further under penalty of death. But we were discluded, and now we have become part of the temple. We are the church. We are his inheritance. We are the stones, the people that build the foundation around the church in alignment with the cornerstone, in alignment with Jesus Christ. So church, can I just challenge you this morning to live out and practice peace that Paul urges so that we may be effective witnesses for Christ and to see new stones added and aligned to the cornerstone. I think our ability to practice, and I say practice with uh, a full reality that this stuff isn't easy. When something is something we haven't mastered already, we need to practice it. I'm challenging you this morning to practice peace, to remember whose you are, to identify what those walls might be in your life that are dividing walls of hostility, where you're distrusting, where you're devaluing, where you're... Where you're um, limiting other individuals and treating them as as if God didn't create them and love them and is actively seeking them. And finally, to do it with God. Let's not try and do this on our own strength. We can't do this on our own strength. We need to focus our attention on Jesus and then walk through the steps of forgiveness and reconciliation that he has set before us. Church, would you just stand with me as we pray and conclude this morning? And Stephanie, I'll invite you to come back up as well. Jesus, this does uh, make me feel, when I'm completely honest, it does make me feel uncomfortable because it's hard for me to reconcile in my heart that, that we aren't always at peace with one another. And I know that it's true because it says it in your word that you came to break down the dividing wall of hostility uh, between us and among us. And, and Jesus, help us to treat one another as you would want us to treat one another. 
Help us to practice peace, especially in those times when it's difficult, Lord God, and strengthen the witness that we have here among us and in our community and uh, as a nation and as a family of God by practicing peace. May we uh, be convicted, never condemned, but be convicted, Lord, of if there are areas in our lives personally. We just take a moment to, to bring that before you because, uh, because it's, it's not a, a public job of, of, of pointing out you know, what those walls are in our own lives, but you know and we know what they are in our heart. If there's a dividing wall of hostility, God, would you identify that in this moment? May we hand that over to you and submit it to your death in the blood of Jesus, that you took that hostility upon yourself to break down that dividing wall so that we may live at peace with one another. God, we are not diluting your word. We are not saying that everything is acceptable to you or everything is something that you, that you agree with or, or desire for our lives, but we do know that you're calling us to love and to be living in peace among us. God, may that amplify your kingdom here on earth. Help us to set aside the Jew and Gentile thing and to just become one in Jesus, one body, the church. And I pray that for those of us here this morning whose stones may be out of alignment with you, we trust you, Holy Spirit, to convict us in those areas so that we may become uh, realigned to you and build that stronger foundation in our own lives and in the church. So church, I just want to challenge you this morning to take a few moments this morning as well as some time this week to just remember in your quiet time, to remember where you were and where you are in order to celebrate the journey that God has brought you on and to remember whose you are. To just come before the Lord with an open heart and say, God, search my heart and make it clean. God, if there's an area in my life that you are, you are needing to put your hand in and to progressively sanctify me, to make me more like Jesus, God, I'm just open to that this week. God, we trust you that, that your word will continue to impact our lives and bring fruit because your word is life-giving and it doesn't return void. Jesus, we love you. From the bottom of our hearts, from the bottom of my heart, I think I can say that it's just our desire to continually to be conformed more to your likeness. That we would continue to be more receptive to what it is that you have for us in our lives. And even when it's hard, even when it's scary, even when it doesn't make sense, may we just say yes to you and trust you pray this in the name of Jesus. Church, don't run away yet. We've got some sandwiches in the foyer for you to enjoy. But uh, we're just going to continue and finish up with one song of worship, and then we will uh, dismiss ourselves. But uh, if, if you feel like you just need some prayer, uh, don't, don't miss out. Just come forward, and we'll pray with you. If you just need to seek God on your own, whether that's in your seat or at the front, that's okay. But if you're just needing to hear from the Lord, please don't leave before you have done so. Take some time to actively seek his presence and his voice this morning.